listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of Self-Publishing Journeys for Monday the 12th of September 2016. My guest on today's podcast was born in Vienna and grew up in England and Germany. After reading English at Cambridge, Griselda Heppel worked in publishing before a move to Oxford with her husband to bring up their four children put her career on hold. She took up writing seriously 10 years ago. Her first book, Ante's Inferno, won the Children's People's Book Prize, a Silver Wishing Shelf Award, and was runner-up in Writing Magazine's self-publishing competition. Griselda's latest book, The Tragical History of Henry Faust, is a dark tale of magic, mystery, demons and Faustian packs as an Elizabethan diary comes to life. I started by asking Griselda what made her decide to tackle some of the world's greatest stories when she started writing. (laughs) <laughs> Dante's Inferno and the Faust legend um, exactly just a couple of small books just, to start with yes well I I know I mean you're quite right um but that was why um I mean I I, I love them I, I read Dante's Inferno when I was a student and Faust as well and um at the time, I remember thinking, this is such an amazing story. Um, I'm, I'm talking specifically about Dante here. Um, uh, here's a man who goes down through the classical underworld right to the bottom of hell, and he has to cross the sticks and deal with Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and the Minotaur, and rivers of fire and rivers of blood. And it, it, it was the most wonderful story. And I thought, why has no one done a children's version of this before um and uh and i thought well somebody will sometime because the children's versions of the odyssey and the iliad and king arthur someone will but they didn't um and then i thought well i'll do one myself um and um then there's the challenge of course what would my dante figure be you know it's going to be a 12 year old child not an adult it's um and why why would it happen and then this girl came to my head, um, not a, a boy, it was um, 12-year-old Antonia, shortened to Auntie, um, and uh, she basically is, is having great difficulties at school and has a row with another girl and a fight, and a terrible accident occurs, and that plunges her into the underworld with her enemy, and um, where they meet a, a boy, Gil, who turns out to have died 100 years before, but he's got stuck somehow. Or he can't move on, um, and all to get, the three of them then together then find themselves going down through all the circles of um, hell and all this wonderful um, Greek mythological Hades. Um, they deal again with all these monsters and uh, to, to to really solve the riddle of, of Gil's death. So that's my. There's a, there's a lot to work with there, isn't yes. there? I mean, they, they, these are just cracking yarns, and yes. of course they've stood the, they've stood the test of time as well, haven't they? Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and uh, I mean, I know because I go into schools a lot um, and uh, talk to children about my books in the background um, and they're fascinated. I mean, children love these myths, um, uh, you know, and, and the great thing is that they've usually heard at least something. You know, they might have known the story of Theseus and the Minotaur or um, failing that everybody, every child knows about a three-headed dog um, through... Harry Potter, if not through Cerberus, the, you know, the, the original mythical, mythological one. Um, and so they, they, really, they really go for it. Um, and then when I did the same with, um, recently, my, um, the book that came out last year, The Tragical History of Henry Faust, um, tackling the Faust legend uh, was, was rather different because this time you're talking about um, not Greek mythology, but a sort of world myth of a man who makes a pact with the demon and uh finds himself in a lot of trouble and uh so i then thought well okay supposing it's a 13 year old boy this time and why 
would he call up a demon? Um, it's a pretty serious thing to do. So um, I imagined Henry Faust as a, a boy who's got himself into a real fix at school and uh, he's, he can't see any way out. And then one day in the school library, he finds instructions on how you can call up um, a, a spirit to your aid and ask for their help. And it's, he finds an old diary that's written in 1586 where they did this kind of thing. Um, and he thinks, right, I'll give it a go. It can't, you know, what, what harm could it do? And then, of course, he finds... <laughs> <laughs> Famous last yes, words. Yeah. This spirit who turns up is, is, is a chap called Mephistopheles, who uh, quite quickly Henry is in far worse trouble than he ever bargained for. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, you're right. Big themes, but, you know, cracking stories for adults and, and I think kids as well. You know, they... they the power in these stories is is really strong, and and I, I I felt kids should not miss out. And so visual too. I remember as a kid, I used to love the Jason and the Argonauts films. Yes. You know, with all the the multi-headed creatures and things like that. And when you were describing Ante's Inferno, I was thinking, oh, Jason and the Argonauts. That's what that sounds like. Very Absolutely. exciting stuff for kids. Absolutely, exactly. I mean, you know, we know from all the sort of the fantasy. Um, genre and computer games and all kinds of things that that actually these these ancient monsters are permanently really exciting you know the man with the head of a bull who lures people into a labyrinth um you know the minotaur obviously the the harpies the the things that centaurs um you know jk rowling did a, a wonderful thing i think at bringing all these creatures back in harry potter um, where they where they have important roles, and she invented one or two of her own, but most of them actually come from uh, world, world sort of classic literature. Um, you know, the basilisk, the uh, yeah, um, the hippogriffs. They they all they're all monsters that have been around for a long, long time, and they never lose their appeal. And I think we've already hit the nail on the head to a certain extent with this, because if you'd have said to me, oh, Dante's Inferno or Faustus, I think I studied Faustus at a degree level, if I remember rightly, I'd think, you know, oh, you know, a little bit dull, a little bit, a little bit literary. Yet when you were describing your, the way you've adapted those stories, because the core of the story is excellent. So you've moved it on to the present day. Yes. And describing the stories there, that's really exciting. And I can really imagine children wanting to jump on those stories and find out more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you can see that. And, and of course, you know Faustus as well. So you probably think, well, it's a very dark story for kids. But um, it's, it's the elements I take from them. And then, of course, I, I do, you know, I don't just retell the stories. Um, I work out a, a completely um, different um, adventure story that works in the present day um, with elements from Faust that... If you've read it, you'd recognise, but you don't need to. You know, that, that's the point. The, the, the kids don't need to have any knowledge of anything before reading my books. Um, and with the tragical history of Henry Faust in particular, it was an opportunity to do a bit of um, historical fiction as well, because I, I, it was so, the story is so um, key to the 16th century, to the whole sort of... Um, environment then of discovery and magic still existing but also people trying to genuinely make scientific discoveries uh, um, that I ended up doing a sort of parallel story of a, of a, a boy in 1586 who um, calls up a demon because he's in real trouble and then he leaves this diary which Henry in the present day is reading and they, their stories sort of go along together in a parallel way um, and eventually sort of build up to a climax one of the things i love about the horrible histories series is that it, it, it's brought something that can be and certainly was when i was a kid very dry yeah and and and, and what you were talking there about the elizabethan sort of diary element of, of of your stories is that you've you've portrayed it in a way or expressed it in a way that's really exciting and engaging for children oh well i'm delighted you say that because um that's what i wanted to do and and um in in fact i i started off thinking well I'll, I'll have him find this diary and he'll read episodes and i thought well now actually we need we need to see the things happening we need to see 
um, the, 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 the John in the 16th century, see his life going on um, with um, all the things you'd have in the 16th century, people wearing different clothes, obviously, the, the different activities. Um, a lot of it's very similar. This is what was so great. You know, they still had to be educated. I mean, the difference is that he's brought into a, um, a, a big house to be companion to um, this, um, the son of the local um, uh, rich man, Sir Richard Walton, um, and they have a tutor to teach them, but they still have to do all these lessons, and, but they have more exciting things like um, they learn to, to dance and uh, obviously sword fighting is part of their lessons and riding and all that sort of thing, but there's still the, the, what excited me was that the actual environment is something children would recognise. They still have to be respectful to their elders they have to do their work. They have to do a lot of Latin, um, which is just sort of probably amusing for the present day. Um, but <laughs> but um, the fact that these boys, four centuries apart, could have very similar problems um, and and also very similar desires. And, and uh, so, you know, and I, I, I love um, historical fiction myself and, and uh, details of the past. And I think it actually enriches the story when you sort of add that element to it. I just felt a little chill there because I did Latin at O-level and oh, yes. barely, ever, barely ever used it again. When you were talking about learning Latin, I thought, oh. <laughs> it took me back in time. Yes, it did. Well, well it, rest assured that, you know, no, no Latin reading has to go on in this book. It's just, you know, it's one of the lessons. It's, it's, I think it's sort of probably quite fascinating for children nowadays to, to see just what was on the curriculum then. And um, it was, you know, Latin, Greek, a bit of French, um, maths, they called accounting. So, you know, probably arithmetic. Um, I think that was about it, really. And then, of course, um, fencing, which probably more fun. Um, And uh, dance. They learned probably dancing every day. Um, And music. Actually, I don't make a lot of that in my book but in the researches I thought that you expected to be able to read music and sing you know it's it's, it's fascinating that really is interesting now I'm interested in your writing process mm. because you've mm. you've got the I say the bare bones of a story but you've, you've kind of got the plot points I guess before you start how, how did you work with this did you start with the books work backwards take the plot points or did you start with your story and then hang it on the plot points I'm just interested in how you did that Oh, I don't know. Um, it's it's more. I mean, the the the, the books were a sort of um, framework of what what I was wanting to achieve in the story. Um, but you know, the last thing I wanted to do was just you know re- reproduce it word for word. It'd be really boring and also rather sort of um, uh, not very ethical. Just is <laughs> copying yes. of Marlowe or Dante things. Um, it was more that I sort of go back to the beginning and it, I mean as a writer the way fiction works for me is that I start off with an idea and then it's a sort of what if so it was sort of okay so what 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 if you decide you want you know your Faustus to be a 12 year old boy now what would make him call up a demon it's such a simple yet yeah, such a complex dilemma for a person isn't it and I, i'm just sort of thinking yeah it's got it's i i, I think mm. it's a really inspired idea actually taking something like that and extrapolating it for modern life i think it uh you know oh, it, well, it's got all the makings of a great story hasn't it well i i thought so and I, I think it is it's this as i say you know i think we're all tempted by a quick fix whatever mm. it'd be so nice but these things always come with strings attached don't they i mean it, that, and that's classic uh, plot point for an awful lot of things, whether, you know, you, you, uh, you've, you've got films of thrillers or people sort of taking on um, agreements with unsavoury people um, and then finding that they've committed themselves to doing something awful. You know, I think that's something children can understand as well as adults. You know, they can sense when something isn't quite right. Um, but, but maybe the temptation at the time was just to solve their problems was um great and then not realizing that ah well yes but now now you know I, you need to do something for me and you know, it's... it took you I, I read when i was digging around eight mm. years to write the first book 
Now, yes. what, what took you so long? <laughs> well, I was, I, I suppose I was learning how to do it. I hadn't written a book before. I'd, I'd done a certain amount of writing and um, bits and pieces and I started things, but I'd, um, I was bringing up my children and they sort of took center stage for quite a number of years. Um, and then it's, yes, there were, that was one of the reasons that I'm still involved in quite a lot of um, just looking after them. But also writing itself, as you know, we can go on learning forever. And the more you yes. write, you realize the harder it is. <laughs> um, and of course, I, I, you know, I, I wrote down my first draft of it. Um, and I thought that's great, you know, I've done it and uh, gave it to people to read. And the thing is, the story was there. It, it was, the elements, it was there. So it was a good read already, but it still needed a lot of work on it. And it took me time to recognize that, you know, you sort of put it away for a bit, look at it again, think, oh, that bit's not so good. Um, and I took it. I, I was very lucky that, you know, I had a friend as a writer and she said, I think you should maybe get a mentor to have a look at this and uh, just give a, a, a sort of a detached critique of it. And um, I, I, did, I did that and um, found there were things that needed doing. I mean, basically, once you, you, you've, you've, you've got your first draft, your second or third draft, there's still a lot of tightening up to do. And I'm realizing this more and more. And I think I didn't, it took me longer to realize that with the first book. So I spent longer over it. The thing that made the difference um, is um, finding a critique organization, literary consultants. There are several people who have set up these um, well, these organizations that are there for writers to help them through the stages of honing their work to the best possible standard it can be. Um, and I use some people called Cornerstones. Um, I use them for both books, in fact, um, and uh, there are others around them. But they were, they were very good. I, I sent them the manuscript and asked for a report. It costs money, obviously, um, Six weeks later, I got the report back, and it's a shock. There's no doubt about it. You know, you, you know that obviously you need um, a, a critique. You need someone to show where things can be improved. Um, but at, at first, it's, it's painful. And so, you know, you put it on one side for a bit. And in fact, Cornstone's say, look, don't allow for the, the criticisms to sink in and then have a look and see what you can do with them. Um, and so I, did, I left it for a bit. Then I looked at it again and I thought, yes, they are right. This bit of structure doesn't work. Um, that, those scenes aren't necessary. This character isn't yet sharp enough. You know, quite, quite hard-hitting points. Um, but it's by going through that process, process and um, rewriting with those things in mind um, with both books it actually made a huge difference um, so with Anderson Inferno it just it, it took me a bit longer really to go through all those mm. stages but it's vital and you know I, I you cannot no writer can be the perfect judge of their work on their own even the best ones I think they they all need to have someone look at it and bounce things back at them and you know, no. It's, yeah. I think I think that the fact it took you eight years though shows remarkable tenacity because as you said, you had real life, family life going on around you while you were doing that writing. And and a lot of people will say, I haven't written a book because I have those very things going on. Now I, I think the fact that it took you eight years to effectively, I guess, learn the craft of writing to bring it to something that you were happy to then publish. Eight years is a long time. Do you feel that you, tenacious? Do you feel um, you've got that as a quality? I suppose so. I mean, I think I believed in the story all along and my family were very supportive here and they believed in it. Um, and and the, the first children who read it, who were my, my children, obviously they're, they're going to be not um, totally, what's the word, um, 
unprejudiced, whatever, unbiased. But but they still they still enjoyed it, and other children enjoyed the story. I could see that the story was there, um, and so I, I did believe in it. And I think I think that helps. Um, and um, but sometimes I did just leave it. Other things took you know took center space on on what was going on um and there'd be a moment when i couldn't bear to look at it actually um i think the the the, the first sort of cornerstones critique i got that was i said it took me um probably a couple of months to actually want to revisit it because i think you do get moments of oh you know let's just give up it's it's hopeless you know i'll never get it right you get but then you know i thought well no that isn't what they said that was the important thing to remember that was not what they said in the report they said the opposite they said no no this is really good so it required a lot of tenacity on your part i know also that you got a, a mentor involved uh, lee weatherly can you yes, talk me through that that's experience? right Sorry. Um, yes, with that, so I mentioned her before um, briefly, and then I went on to Cornerstones, but she was the first one who looked at it, um, and she's a great writer herself. I, I, was, I was very um, uh, honoured that she gave me the time. It was, it was um, very kind of her. And again, that was, she, she wouldn't have done it if she didn't think there was something worthwhile there. So that was encouraging in its own way. Um, but she, she was the first one to really look at it and say, look, um, you know, the story is good and the overall um, way it moves from beginning to end is good, but this individual scenes need tightening up and some scenes don't need to be there at all. Um, and that, that's, I needed to learn that um, because, you know, there, there is, you have to, question every scene in a book and every well everything that happens is it actually advancing the plot is it in there just to make a joke and i did have a few scenes that did that um is it in there just because um you know you wanted to lengthen that bit in that particular area of of um hell but it's not actually advancing the story of Auntie and Florence and Gill and where they're going. And um, the answer to all those questions, quite often, yes, in which case, take it out. Um, and the funny thing about that is that while initially I thought, I don't want to do that, I don't want to lose those scenes, actually, well, once they went, I didn't mind a bit. You know, it completely, I, I, I just, I suppose, because you realise that, that the result is better tightened up so Lee Weatherly was wonderful for that I've already mentioned your tenacity it also sounds though like you've got to develop a thick skin and some resilience with all this yes. feedback flying around yes you do and I don't know if one ever does really I think um you know and I'm glad because other authors say the same I think you know that you've got to take the critique and that it'll be good in the long run um but really you know you'd love it if you just sent something in and you got back, oh, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful, <laughs> you know. Um, but of course, that would be useless because um, you, you do need someone. You, you need if the things that are wrong, the things that don't work, you need to know and you need to be able to alter them. Um, so I think each time you just um, you have to work on the resilience. Um, it's better that way. I, I, I think if one took the line, well, that's your view, you know, you don't understand. Um, and if you, if you argue, then you've kind of lost it, really, because these people, especially someone who's a, a literary consultant or a, a writer themselves, an editor, they, they do know what they're doing. They, you know, and they're looking at your writing with a very sharp eye. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it, there's no point justifying yourself if, if you're not going to take on board something that could make it so much better. So, yeah, you just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on the, on the, the thick skin bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's tough, isn't it? It's one of the tougher parts of being an author, I think, that. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, so having written the book... Mm. 
and edited the book and taken all that feedback on the chin. You and yes. I now know, of course, that that's just the beginning of everything, isn't it? Because we've got to get the thing uh, published and marketed and sold and all the other things that come with being yeah. a self-published yes. author. When, when you when you got the, the book to, I'm talking about Antis Inferno here, when you got it into shape and you were ready to move on with it, what, what then were your aspirations for publication? Did you always want to self-publish or had you aspired to traditional publishing? Um, yeah, I know I did try traditional publishing first um, and I sent it around to a, f- a few agents and um, uh, publishing companies um, and it did get some interest. I mean, I think people did like the story. It was different um, and um, uh, yeah, as I said, I, I did get some feedback but ultimately I think children are often underestimated in what things that they can take on board when they're reading a story. And I kept coming up against this Dante for children. You know, it's, it's really much too, um, uh, what's what, academic or something. I mean, even though it wasn't, you know, I knew it wasn't. But I think that was a stumbling block. Um, and um, so after a while, I thought, well, but this is, I know this is a good story. I know children want to read it because by that point, I tried it on about 30 or 40 children um, and they'd all loved it. So, I mean, that's quite big, a big sample so between the ages of nine and 14 and about the right age. Um, and, uh, you know, they had no trouble with with the Dante bit because, as I said, it was all sort of classing with classical mythology um the other aspect that i haven't mentioned yet it actually has a first world war theme in the book once you get to the very very lowest bits of hell um it's um there's not much that's more hellish than a recreation of a first world war battle um Mm. so that's in the book as well and i think some people again looking at it just said but well, you've just got too much in there children can't take all this in they will get confused and again i knew that wasn't true um so that that was the point when i thought you know this book i i know children if they can get the chance to read it i know they will enjoy it so i'm just going to do it myself and so what path did you take to self publication i'm assuming by the way that when you'd written the book it was Available in electronic form? You don't handwrite or anything like that, do you? No. Isn't that, no, it's all on, on um, yes, PC now. I, I haven't handwritten for a long time, which I actually rather, sometimes I feel a bit bad about that. But um, what path did I take? Well, the, the first priority f- for me was that I wanted it to be a completely professional job. I didn't want to just... Um, yeah, up, upload it onto um, desktop publishing or something and bung it out and um, uh, on sheet paper and small type. And, you know, I mean, I have seen poor quality self-published works. I expect you have as well. Um, yes. And it doesn't have to be like that. And I think that's a really important thing to say because so often there are people who assume that this is what goes with it. If you're going to self-publish, then you're going to produce something that just um, just doesn't look doesn't look um, like another book. It just sort of, and, and automatically, I think that uh, it's hard to feel confidence that therefore it's a good story inside it. So um, I, I wanted it to be, um, you know, a, a nice, well-made book with a good cover and good production values. Um, and then I came across um, Troubadour, who um, are, in fact, a, a trade publishing company. Um, so with, with all the experience and facilities of that, but they have their own self-publishing print, uh, Matador. And um, I, I looked up what they do, and I realized, well, actually, this, is, th- this would be a way to do it, because by u- using them, I could be sure of... Um, it, it, good production values, good design, um, that the book would not look out of place in a, in a bookshop with, you know, beautifully produced other books from um, trade publishers. So that was um, my, 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 the way I made my decisions. So when you finally got to hold your book in your hand after 
Was that an eight-year journey by that stage? Yes, or maybe nine by that point, because, well. yes, because the troubadour pretty quick, but even so, there's <laughs> some time of, by the time you've submitted it and uh, got it into the system. So, yes. How did that feel? Because I, I think there's, no, there's nothing as magical, is there? It's wonderful. Really is wonderful. It's Yeah, I know, and I, th- I think all authors feel this. Um, I, I think the excitement is that one's managed to write a book in the first place you know it's it's and then write something that that you find that people really want to read i mean that's pretty important uh, and then it yes it's in your hands and it looks fantastic got your name on it got a, a wonderful cover i mean that, that was the other thing about self-publishing i could choose my own cover and i i um commissioned uh, um a super wood engraver called hillary painter who's who's um very highly thought of um and i commis- commissioned her to do covers for both books um and then a, a very good designer called pete lawrence who then did the rest of the design because the great thing about matador is that um they will provide anything that you want as much or as little so they will do it all including cover and design and marketing or they will do less than that and just do the printing and the product, you know, whatever. So they're very, they're very good to work with in that way. Um, so yes, holding this lovely, beautiful book in my hand. And it's, I think it is really important to feel proud of the, uh, the final product because, you know, I'm now going to have to tell people all about it and hold it up and, and hold up something that I feel is um, not just a really good book. Obviously, I'm, um, I, I'm backing that, but um, it, it looks good and nice to handle, and I think that's important. I think your journey is very interesting, Griselda, because not only has it taken you a lot of time, it's taken a lot of tenacity, but yes. you've obviously spent a lot of money in making this product the very best that it can be. And I think this illustrates, I think your story yeah. illustrates, this isn't a course for the faint-hearted. You've got to be all in, haven't you? And you, and you certainly yeah. were all in with this. Yes. Um, I th- that's, you're right. I think that's the decision you then make. You have to you sort of think, well, what, what do I want to get out of this? What, what is my aim in self-publishing? Um, you know, do I want to make, make my millions? Um, in which case, don't, you know, forget <laughs> it. Um, or do I just want to get get a book out there, which I know will, if given a chance, you know, will do well, that people will want to buy and and want to read this story, which clearly I've I felt so passionately about that I wrote it, um, and that that was my aim, um, really. I mean, it is, you know, the Dante and the Faust connection. Um, it's is yes they make wonderful frameworks for stories but at the same time i what i love when i was young reading adventure stories quite often there'd be elements in them that i just thought about the story and later on i would discover oh that some um, that relates to uh well greek mythology or to um you know old english um poetry Chaucer something you know things that don't matter at the time but they sort of enrich um your your basically your framework of what of, of images and knowledge about the world and and other great books and I like the fact that um this way people who might never read Dante or Faust ever in their lives yet they would get from reading this book, they'd get some elements of, how, of what the stories were. So it was a, wrong, a long way around to saying that was why I wanted to publish the books. And yes, you're right, they did cost money. But, um, you know, it's one, it, you hope then to sell all the books, in which case, you know, you're not out of pocket in the end. Um, but that is, of course, a gamble. Um, and it was important to me to make it as good as I, I could. So, yes. 
again, an, an important part of the author's journey is the writing, the editing, the actually holding the book in your hand. But again, it all starts again from there because, as you've already alluded to, we've got to we've got to sell the things yeah. now. We've yeah. got to get them out there and into yeah. the hands of readers. So um, I know that you get a lot of support from Matador. For instance, you've got a lovely uh, website, which is so important, I think, for authors, and you've, yes. you've populated it very well. So congratulations on that. It, uh, it's very <laughs> eye-catching. Um, so how did you get selling the books and getting them into the hands of, of readers uh well yes you're right it's it's it you you basically you just have to throw yourself in there so you know i went and talked to all the bookshops in um where i live um and uh showed them uh i think even before i had copies of the book i showed them a picture of the cover and an advanced information sheet which matador uh, provides um and um you know, luckily, bookshops. I think they are supportive of local authors, um, and so that that helped a bit. Um, uh, yes, website is good. Sort of trying to blog every now and then, going on Twitter, on Facebook. I mean, the key thing, um, which I discovered very quickly, is that what you don't do is endless social media saying, "Buy my book, buy my book, buy my book." <laughs> yes. It puts people off and it's very boring. And you you have to just sort of um, it's more that you engage with other people on Facebook or Twitter and sort of chat and react to what they're doing and, or it, it's, it's gradually, it's making relationships. Um, and then people get the idea that, um, oh, you know, this, this person's got some amusing things to say every now and then, or, you know, so you, you build up relationship with people and then they sort of go and have a look and, oh, maybe my kids would like that book, that sort of thing. Um, but you can go on forever to do, and doing this. And I, um, I think, to be honest, the best thing you can do, if you can discover a particular way that gets you to your audience that you can um, uh, really develop, um, then one should go for that and for me as I mentioned before um, I, I love going into schools because I, I just love talking to the kids about the backgrounds to my books um, and um, I bring copies of books in with me and nearly always a lot of them do want to buy it once they've heard about it that's the thing they don't know about these books before I've come in there and once they've heard about them and think gosh it's a really exciting story then um, they want to buy them. So I, I sell quite a lot that way. Um, so with marketing, you know, you could just go on forever. Publicity is good too. I try and, you know, with the People's Book Prize, uh, I got into my local paper um, uh, when I was in the finals. And of course, when I won with Antis Inferno, that got me quite a lot of local publicity. Um, local radio, they always, always keen to talk to people who are doing things or done things um that that sort of bit out of the ordinary so whether writing a book or um i don't know setting up a new charity or something you know that the but it is up to me to set these things up and and that's you know no one's going to um i mean matador do do a whole lot themselves but locally um and in general the best person is the author themselves to actually enthuse people can i explore your competition entries a little bit mm. because uh, competitions are something i've tried and i i sometimes wonder whether I, I should be doing it because they usually have an entry fee and yes. it takes time and you've got to go through the process it's a bit like submitting to agents in many respects yes. they need a synopsis the dreaded synopsis all the time um but you've had some success you've done really well but the first book you got the you won the children's category of the people's book prize yes you've you've uh, taken a silver at the wishing shelf awards which i had my first punt at this year i discovered it in the a go at that yeah. no success i'm afraid so i'm very <laughs> and then you've had another crack at the people's book award so so are you going into a lot of awards and and what sort of benefits do you get when you you actually have some luck with them um well it does help it, it really does yes i do enter awards i, I enter ones that um uh, you know that are open to my particular genre so children's books um independent publishers those sorts of things um uh you know obviously i've entered some and i've got nowhere so, mm. um gen and you're right they they a lot of them have an entry fee um they 
try and keep it low, but it does mount up. And um, you can make mistakes. I mean, I with Andy's Inferno, I, I think I was so sort of... Um, what's the word, um, head in, in the clouds, that I did enter for one or two that I didn't have a possible hope of winning. But I didn't <laughs> realise. And then when the winners were announced and they were really, really well-known writers, um, I thought, well, what was I thinking of? So, you know, one can learn from that, luckily. Um, but, it, you know, it, it helps because you then, if you're... A finalist I think you know if you finalist is good winner obviously even better it does attract attention in the media um local media um mostly have to say I haven't made the national papers yet although some children's magazines like Aquila and and one or two parenting magazines do know they've done reviews um uh but it, so it attracts attention it's um, helped I think going into schools, again, you know, I'm an award-winning author and I need to come and talk to children about what it's like to write a book and, uh, you know, how you set about thinking up a story and characters. Um, that I think I, that gives me more more clout, I suppose. Um, Anderson Inferno also won... No, it didn't win, sorry. It was runner-up in the writing writing magazine self-publishing award. And that was well, that's something. a good one, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um so I had a bit of exposure in, in that magazine. Um, I and, and I think, you know, you just, obviously you make the most of all these things. Um, you know, you can then put them on, on Tragical History of Henry Faust. It's got, yes, by the author of Antis Inferno, winner of the People's Book Prize. Um, it, it does help when people have more... You know, they already like the look of your book. If you've, you're a finalist or an award winner or something, you know, that makes gives them more confidence that, ooh, this, this person's, maybe, you know, has probably written a good book. You know, my, my children will enjoy it if it's, especially something like the People's Book Prize, which is voted for entirely by people, by um, readers. Um, and so that was, you know, a great um, boost to be voted for for both books and you know to reach the finals and win with the first book uh because you know those that's my readership voting out there it's you know and their parents and teachers um people who've seen read seen the book read the book read some of the book even but really really rate it that's that's wonderful when you came to the Henry Faust book, um, mm. I'm taking it, it didn't take another eight years. You must have no. honed your process by then. How long did that take? Um, and what did you learn by that stage? Um, well, yeah, that's probably, I was sort of beginning it in between the resting points with Antis Inferno, when there were moments when I just couldn't work on Antis Inferno for a few months, and I started Henry Faust. So it's sort of interleaved with that but it's um it still needed a lot of rewriting as well um so i suppose that took about four years and so maybe the next lot my next book with two maybe i'll keep halving the time <laughs> i i'm not sure i will though um and i yes i did learn i mean I, I i the first big thing i learned was this business about you know you get your first draft down any old way um which it's hard in itself because you're thinking out of absolutely, you know, a blank, blank page or your ideas, you're working them out and moulding them into a story with the characters and you get it, but you get that done um, and then you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and you expect that as part of the process. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that, that did help with the tragical history of Henry Faust. And um, again, I, I involved um, Cornerstones. I actually went on a writer's workshop with them at an early stage with Henry Faust, and that helped a lot. Um, they were able to, <laughs> pointed out that I hadn't quite got the focus of the story at all in my first draft. I, you know, and but that was great to learn that then, because then I, I saw that and 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 rewrote it um, and made it. You know, the whole thing made much more sense. Things fell into place much better. It's funny that. You know, you think that you can't see these things yourself as a writer, but I, I don't think you always can. Um, 
So the the best thing to learn is to get help actually to um, rewrite a lot and not be afraid of trying it out on um, other people. I mean, some people use a writer's group for that. Um, I I don't have a writer's group at the moment. Um, I I should probably do that as well, but it, it just having um, a professional organisation like a literary consultancy um, it, it also works brilliantly. Perhaps even better because they're not worried about um, you know sitting in a room critiquing each other's work and and worrying about how to say things um, when you know on a social occasion. With if, if you use a literary consultancy, it's a you do it at a distance and it's a job, professional job. That's what they do. Do you have a work in progress ongoing at the moment? Yes, I do. I do, and that's coming along. Um, it's this time. It, it's it's a it, it's slightly a different um, case for me this time because I haven't used a great classic story. That's going to be my fourth one. I've got that one already waiting in the background, but I've, got this, <laughs> I've suddenly worked. Yes, yeah, so, so that's exciting. Um, but for this one, it's it's sort of taking a rest from that and it's um it's more of a mystery story um set in late in 1968 um it's called the fall of the sparrow um and it's uh, about um, a 10 year old girl who gets sent off to boarding school because of something terrible that's happened which we don't know about at the beginning um and uh the school is all rather scary and strange and there's this little boy who keeps following her around and all the other girls ignore him and pretend not to see him at least she thinks they're pretending mm-hmm. and that's where things move on from there it's sort of a mystery unfolds and that's as far as i've got so far <laughs> uh, and, what, and so as an author what are your longer term aspirations i've seen a couple of reviews and comments that you've got saying oh this would make a good film which is always very exciting for authors so is, is that what you're aspiring to Oh, always, yes. I mean, I know, wouldn't it? I mean, that's the, the um, both of them would actually. I mean, Antis Inferno with, with sort of fabulous going through all these um, circles of the underworld with all these monsters. And I mean, the special effects in the film could be just amazing. And, and Henry Faust, you've got um, the parallel storyline, you've got the historical bit, and you've got the element of magic and Mephistopheles appearing. And, and um, uh, and there's a uh, various magical things do intrude on present day life, which sort of heightens the tension. Um, I yeah, no, but I know. I'm def- definitely open open to offers, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I haven't haven't had anyone sort of battering at my door yet for that. But you know, there's time. This time, <laughs> so, but, but that aside, then are you going to just you're going to continue writing, continue mm. writing for children? Going to have a crack at adults or anything like that? No, I think I, I, I mean I, I have written, I've written a couple of short stories and those are adults uh, probably, but I no I, I I I write I write for me really, and I think um, somewhere I'm I'm still a twelve year old. Um, you know the, the stories that I really loved at that particular age. It's such a a rich age because by then you're really ready for a, 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 a complex a, a, sto- a story with the complexity of an adult novel you can you know children are easily able to um enjoy that um and with all the sort of emotional um journeys and uh, conflicts as well but um at the same time uh, you know you you're still still kids you have the that sort of feeling of not yet having to be um take on the adult world with all its responsibilities and and um practical things like sort of getting jobs and getting careers and mm-hmm. and, uh, and you've still got that sort of uh, you know being uh, being on the in 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 the sort of the world of childhood still in the world of magic and you know i i think it's just my favorite age of books um i do read adult books too but there's something special about that that speaks to me and that's so when i think about writing a story that's always the audience that that um i've yeah that it that, that comes to mind 
It's been fascinating talking to you today, Griselda. Can you just tell us where we, the best places to find you online? Yeah. Yes, well, indeed, there's my website, which is um, www.griseldaheppel.com. I've got a blog to griseldaheppel.wordpress.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, Griselda Heppel, Facebook, Griselda Heppel author page. Luckily, I was stuck, stuck to, to my name, so it's uh, um, it, not too much to remember. Um, I mean, my books are available through um, no, the normal way through book shops if they haven't got them in they can order them also online um direct from troubadour Uh, the great thing is that they are available in in the same way that any published book is available um you know it doesn't matter who's published them um so yes um i'd love people to visit my website and um, leave me a comment or chat to me on twitter or um like my facebook page um and you know I, it's um it's 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 great i think getting feedback from people it, it, and i don't i think possibly children because they're younger um don't leave so much direct feedback um in that way as as maybe i get from people on twitter um but it's wonderful always and often their, their parents tell me how much their children have enjoyed the books and you know, when's the next one coming out and just, no pressure or anything like that. But I, no, I love people to get in touch and have a look and see what I'm up to. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or whichever podcast directory you use. If you're new to self-publishing, you might also like to check out selfpublishingacademy.com the step-by-step guide to getting your manuscript off your hard drive and into print. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.